Specialty Story, session number 128. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every episode where I get to talk to a physician about his or her specialty and the path that they took to get there and hopefully some insights into their specialty to help provide you with some guidance on where you ultimately want to end up. This week, I have a great guest, someone who I've actually met before, someone who did their residency with Dr. Allison Gray. We have Dr. Danny Bega on the podcast. He is the Neurology Residency Program Director at Northwestern, and he is a movement disorder specialist as a neurology specialty. And we talk all about what drew him to neurology and movement disorder and much more. We start the conversation by what drew him to neurology and movement disorder. I think a little bit at the same time, uh, which is unusual. I think most people don't figure out their subspecialty or their fellowship until much later. Um, I was, it was early in, in med school, like first year of med school when, um, I, I realized I really like neuroanatomy. Um, I thought that maybe radiology was going to be a good choice because I really like, uh, looking at MRIs of brains and, and the anatomy of, of pathology in the brain. Um, but it, quickly I realized that I really liked more of the patient interaction and, um, it was the neuroanatomy that was fascinating to me and neurology was just such a good fit for figuring out the, the puzzle of the neuroanatomy and, uh, just the fascination of the way things map to pathology and, uh, um, I thought was really interesting. Um, and then around, I mean, really very, very shortly after when we had our lectures on, uh, on Parkinson's disease and other movement disorders, they would show videos, um, as they usually do for movement disorders. And they would show videos of people before and after levodopa therapy, before and after DBS treatment. And I was just amazed by, uh, the differences that you would see in, in, uh, quality of life and in function. And it was so obvious and apparent the changes you could make in such a short period of time with the right therapies and these diseases. And so that, that was really a big hook for me. Um, and that was sort of the first. I mean, later on, it became more obvious uh, as I was interacting with patients that I really liked sort of the primary care doctor role of like having long-term relationships with patients um, where you would um, know the same patient for years and follow them and get to, you know, uh, be an important part of of their of their life and, 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 and their family life and deal with multiple different problems, not just one problem, but uh, multiple different areas of their quality of life related issues, motor and non-motor. When I realized I really liked to do that, but I didn't want to know everything about everything like a primary care doctor has to do. Um, I really wanted to specialize. And in, in movement disorders, you really get to be sort of the primary care doctor, but for a subset of problems. And so it's nice to, you get to know your patients with you know, Parkinson's is probably the, the highest volume of patients we see. You get to know them really well over a very long period of time, but you're dealing more than just with their tremor. Um, you're also treating their depression and their anxiety and their cognitive issues. And so you become sort of a primary care doctor uh, for a patient, but get to focus it a little bit more. Yeah. 
That sounds pretty cool. What's the biggest myth or misconception around uh, movement disorders and, and maybe neurology specifically? I mean, neurology for sure, the misconception that everyone brings up is the, the, the difficulty in dealing with diseases that you can't treat, um, that you can't, certainly that you can't cure. And so the, the misconception becomes we can't do anything for people. Yeah. Um, and so that we're just diagnost, di- diagnosticians, but that's, uh, and, you know, it's a lot of discussion and esoteric discussions, but not actually practical uh, fixing of things. Um, I mean, definitely a, a misconception. I think people realize that pretty quickly. I think I, I liken it to, I mean, if you're managing someone's high blood pressure, you're not, you're not curing them of high blood pressure. You're managing their high blood pressure. And we do the same thing. We don't cure them of their Parkinson's, but we manage it. We make their day-to-day quality of life better. Um, and we reduce morbidities. And, uh, and so it's really no different from any other, uh, disease that's, that's being managed rather than cured. Um, and uh, I think that the other misconception is that because we can't cure people, that it's sort of uh, a, a thankless job as well. And it's really not. I find that I actually am most fascinated by the fact that the, the patients that I've taken care of the longest, who sometimes I feel like I, I really wish I could have done more for them, they're the most grateful from the, the patients and their family members are the most grateful um, and sometimes it's as simple as just knowing that they're in the hands of someone who has expertise in their condition um, and who they can turn to for questions. And, and that's extremely rewarding as well, just being that person for them. Um, but, but that's, that's sort of, um, that's maybe the shallowest way that we, we make a dent. I mean, if you really look at it, um, we're uh, not just improving people's quality of life, but the research that's happening in neurology today in, in the neurosciences is, I, I would say, far and above almost every other field in terms of uh, the exciting advances that are happening uh, each day. So it's a really exciting field. It's certainly not uh, one where any of us really feels like we're doing or we're not making a difference. We, we really feel that we are every day. So Yeah. What do you think is the the most important trait that uh, someone needs to be a movement disorder specialist? Um, for, for movement disorders, um, I would say uh, you have to be, I, I think that it's important to have the sense of uh, wanting to be a primary caregiver for a patient. Like you're, you really have to realize that it's not going to be just focused on handling the movement disorder. Um, when you think about movement disorders, you think about the movements, but I, I would say we spend the majority of our time not on movements. The majority of our time is spent on managing uh, anxiety, depression, cognitive issues, urinary issues, autonomic instability, uh, social work issues. Um, it is a lot of those typical kind of primary care doctor issues. Um, the The movement disorder part is fun, and that's what draws us into it. And it's very, it's very visual, and so people really enjoy that. But the day-to-day management is much goes much beyond the movement disorder. Um, and then the second is probably uh, that, in, at least in academics, uh, it's, it's a big part of movement disorders is clinical trials. And that's actually exciting, but uh, you really can't do movement disorders in an academic setting without being involved or participating in clinical trials because there's so much happening with new drug development in movement disorders, and it's a big part of our, our, of our work. Yeah. Talk about the types of patients that you're seeing. You mentioned Parkinson's patients. Are there other types of patients you're seeing as well as a movement disorder specialist? 
Yeah, so I actually run our Huntington's disease clinic, um, and I also run our Wilson's disease clinic, so two rare diseases that um, uh, I get to see a lot of, actually. Um, so genetic conditions, hereditary conditions that really can affect whole families. Um, you, you may be seeing someone who's, who has the disease and a family member of theirs who's at risk for the disease. And um, so there's a lot of, of, of interesting moving pieces and elements to, to dealing with that. But um, we, deal, uh, we get to do some procedures, which is nice. We do, uh, uh, for patients with dystonia, we're doing a lot of botulinum toxin injections. So I would say multiple times a day, I get to actually use my hands and uh, a lot of neurologists don't. So I get to uh, do injections. I do limb injections for spasticity. I'll do cervical dystonia injections in the neck. I'll do uh, hemifacial spasm injections, uh, injections for drooling. Um, so there's a lot of indications for botulinum toxin that we that we get to to, to use in movement disorders. Um, there's deep brain stimulation, whether it's for Parkinson's disease or essential tremor. So we do programming of deep brain stimulators. There's uh, ataxia and other kind of gait disorders, and um, so there's a, there's a lot of, of interesting movement disorders that you can that you'll see in one even in one day. Yeah. Very cool. So I know as the program director there for the neurology residency, there's probably not a typical day for you, but do you have a kind of a typical week that uh, someone might expect? Yeah, uh, it's actually nice. Every day is a little different, which is one of the things I really like about my um, position here. Um, I spend about half of my week in clinic seeing patients. And then the other half of my week is split between doing administrative uh, stuff for the residency or teaching related to the residency, like doing morning reports or noon conferences. Um, and then uh, clinical trials is the rest of that other, of that second half is uh, um, actually uh, uh, I have several clinical trials going on here that are industry trials that we're participating in. And um, so uh, seeing subjects and, and, uh, um, one of the trials we have right now involves uh, lumbar punctures, and so sometimes I'll, I might go in and do a lumbar puncture for a trial. And so my day, my my week really is uh, really uh, varies, which is nice. Every yeah. day is a little different. Yeah. For movement disorders, how many of the patients are coming to you already with a diagnosis of Parkinson's or some other disorder, versus how many are coming with with symptoms, and you're trying to figure out what's going on. Um, I would say about 75% um, either are coming for a second opinion or to like establish care for a diagnosis that someone else suspected or was already given to them. Um, and about 25% are coming for the kind of first evaluation of a new symptom. Mm -hmm. um, it is a tertiary care center. And so that's kind of typical, I think. Um, most of them are coming to establish care, though. Uh, it's rare that I just see a patient once and don't see them again, yeah. uh, unless it turns out to not fall under movement disorders. Yeah. yeah, makes sense. What does call look like for you? Um, I, uh, you know, I always carry my own pager. We don't have a lot of, one of the things that's nice about movement disorders is we don't, we have, it's very rare that we have emergencies. Um, so it's really, really rare that I get paged at night or over a weekend. Um, if I get paged over a weekend, it's usually something minor like a medication refill. Um, 
And most of the things we get called about can wait until uh, until a Monday uh, during work hours to deal with because they're usually really not urgent issues. Um, I will do uh, I will attend on the inpatient uh, consult neurology general neurology consult service. Um, I'll do that a few times a year, um, usually a week at a time, up to three or four times a year, um, and and that's really it oh. for me. So you're the residency program director there. What does the the path look like to become a movement disorder specialist? So neurology residency is one year of internal medicine first, mm-hmm. prelim year, and then three years of, of neurology. Um, after that, uh, there's fellowship, and everybody really these days goes into fellowship after neurology residency. There are a lot of different kinds of fellowship opportunities in, in neurology, which is actually one of the great things about the field. I mean, um, what would, depending on what your interest is, there's something for everybody in neurology, whether it's you know, critical care, and uh, there's, there's neurocritical care, whether you like high acuity, there's stroke, there's, um, and there's more outpatient specialties like mine, like movement disorders. And um, so there's, 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 really, there's procedural fields like EMG, neuromuscular. And so there's a lot of different kinds of fields for depending on what your interest is. And uh, movement disorders is a one or two year fellowship that you do after residency is over. Um, it really depends on what you're trying to get out of fellowship. Uh, one year is like a standard clinical movement disorders fellowship. I did two years. Um, I did one year that was sort of a standard clinical fellowship and a second year uh, that also incorporated a master's of science in clinical investigations where I learned to do a little, get a little bit more expertise in running clinical trials. Um, And uh, some people will do a, second year to specifically gain more expertise in deep brain stimulation. And so there might, there's, there's various reasons why someone might do a second year. There's a lot of flexibility because these aren't, um, AC, this isn't an uh, ACGM accredited fellowship. And so there's a lot more flexibility in what you can do in terms of, uh, what, how the fellowship can be shaped, um, which is true for many fellowships. Yeah. For the medical student out there who's interested in neurology, obviously, Northwestern Chicago, competitive city, uh, nice program there, competitive program. What does a medical student have to do to get on your radar to potentially match at your program? Um, Yeah, so uh, I think... There's always questions about whether people need to do away electives or anything else. So um, I would say the the most important thing is we look at the the application as a whole, and uh, I wouldn't get bogged down on any one specific part of the of the application. Um, we consider ourselves a, a very strong and competitive program, um, uh, but people always wonder, you know, is it is admission based purely on uh, on board scores and things like that? And it's really not. Um, we uh, we we look at we we look at uh, performance on clerkships. Um, we look at letters of recommendation. Um, we look at things like uh, AOA, of course. We look at uh, research. There's not one thing that is required of any particular applicant. Um, uh, we we like a diverse group. I mean, we really like people with different backgrounds, with different interests, and um, we don't expect that every applicant has published ten papers. Or um, it really is more about finding consistency with your goals and what you've done. And so, for instance, um, if you're coming into a program, applying to a program, saying I really want to have a research focused career and apply for all these grants. Um, it's, it's important to see that you've done some research in med- medical school or had some interest in that to back it up. 
Um, if you're coming in saying, I want to be a medical educator, that's much less important that we see that you've done research. Uh, it's more important that you've shown some initiative with regard to, to that career track, um, something in medical education. Um, I think uh, the, the programs themselves that people are at for their medical school are important, are, are big draws for, people, for, for, for programs. Like we like to see that people are coming from reputable programs. Um, uh, we also are looking for diverse, uh, I mentioned people with different backgrounds. We're really looking for, for people with diverse backgrounds to, uh, who may not have as traditional of an application um, to reach out and, and uh, tell us about their interests and make sure that they stay on our radar. Um, so we realize that people have different strengths. So um, it's, not, it's never a bad idea to reach out, whether it's an email um, to tell us about your interests, or if we're at a meeting like American Academy Academy of Neurology meeting, to to reach out and, and meet um, to to talk about interests and, and things like that. But there really isn't a one one size fits all kind of applicant. Um, I think uh, it's it's just it's important to to find people with different strengths who show consistency in their application. And then it's also we look for red, you know red flags. I guess if you would look for. Um, people who have had, had struggles or problems with certain aspects of their training, uh, making sure that it's clear kind of what those were about, why, why they had those issues that, that can be helpful to us. Yeah. What are your thoughts with the, the potential of step one, at least going pass fail? Um, I, uh, you mean, would it, uh, would I be for or against it? Yeah. For or against um, it, or how do you think it, it might affect your, um, your kind of application process? Yeah, I think it would be fine. I don't think it would affect our uh, invitation or application uh, acceptance that much. We really, you know, we really don't rely on it very much. Yeah. Um, so I think, I mean, if someone has a very strong, like, a, like a, really a standout strong score or a fail, um, it may stand out. But most people are, you know, uh, in, within a big range. Uh, we don't really, we don't rank them based on that, and we don't invite based on it. Yeah. Okay. For the osteopathic medical student listening to this, how can they overcome some of the negative bias out there against them? Um, you know, I think that uh, the the programs they come from, I think it's important for them, for, for their programs to um, represent kind of what they offer. Um, I mentioned that, like, we, we really look at uh, the reputation of the program as being an important a factor. And so I think that those programs can help sell uh, those uh, students a little bit by making sure that we know about those programs. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of programs out there. There's a lot of DO programs out there. Um, so we certainly feel more comfortable inviting people from programs that we have heard of, that we know of. And so I think it's important that they uh, reach out. Yeah. And when um, you when you mention programs, just to, to clear it up for the student, are you talking specifically about the medical school or the neurology program that's associated with that school? Oh, no, the medical school okay. uh, is what I'm going to. Yeah. Okay. Very cool. What do you wish primary care providers knew about what you were doing day in and day out as a movement disorder specialist? Um, 
Well, I think it's uh, we have a lot of overlap in uh, our management of patients. I would say that um, we we both deal a lot with um, psychiatric and social issues. We both deal a lot actually um, with uh, issues related to autonomic function, like blood pressure issues. There's a lot of things that we share. Um, so I think it's just really important to have a good collaboration. Um, I I always find that it. Uh, it doesn't even matter to, to me uh, the skill of the primary care doctor that my patients have as much as it is my, their accessibility to me. Um, if, we can, if we can communicate easily through the electronic charting system or through phone calls, um, if we can see what one another is doing and coordinate our care, it just makes it so much easier for patients. And so um, I think that that's most important is realizing that we're both, um, uh, we're both dealing with pretty broad uh, areas of the patient's day-to-day life. And so we have to make sure that we're working together and, and collaborating. So just kind of maintaining a relationship. What do you wish you knew before going into movement disorder? You know, I think uh, how, first of all, how important the relationships would be with uh, family members of the patients. Um, that's something I didn't realize was was very critical. Um, how important our other staff members are. Uh, we can't do it all as, as neurologists. And so having a good supporting staff makes such a big difference. So PTs and OTs and speech pathologists, how many different staff we use, social workers and genetic counselors and nurses and medical assistants. I mean, um, we really rely on a lot of different people um, to manage what seems like at times like uh, like simple problems once you get used to them, but there's so many people involved. Um, I think that uh, it's you know the other thing is just how long it takes for for things to progress in advance. You know some of the therapies we're excited about, we want to get to our patients. You have to be really patient because um, while there's so much happening. Um, there's a lot of failures, unfortunately, in, in the in the research that's happening for some of these diseases, and then there's it just takes a long time for studies to happen and to 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 go to completion, and so that's something where you have to learn to be to be more patient, and um, uh, I think that that can be difficult. What do you like the most about being a movement disorder specialist? Um, I always tell people I think the coolest thing that well, I, maybe it's also one of the things I didn't realize is that you become the diagnostic tool yourself in movement disorders. So we order less tests than probably any other field I can think of. Um, movement disorders is a visual field that you you diagnose patients based on your own expertise and pattern recognition, but it's really rare that we rely on imaging, for instance, to make a diagnosis. Um, and so you start to become the, the the your expertise and the more familiar you you become the more you see you become more expert and you become a better tool yourself in making the diagnosis I think that's so cool um, that uh, the as I as I look at someone they come to see me because they they need me to view their movement so that I can make a diagnosis um, because there's no better tool really right now most of these diagnoses are clinical. There's no more sensitive tool than an expert clinician judgment uh, in movement disorders. So I think that that makes you indispensable and makes it, and it, may, it makes you the, the key part of the evaluation. So I think that's really unique. What do you like the least? Um, there are some of the social and non-motor related things that are really difficult to manage that, that are hard. So the, 
the, the really advanced dementia patients who are relying a lot on um, supportive care, that, that's really difficult. Um, and then some of the non-motor issues like um, it, like autonomic instability can be very difficult to, to, to manage. Um, so there are some, some symptoms that I, that I just find much more challenging to treat. Um, I would say that's probably, I think that's probably it. Do you see any major changes or breakthroughs coming to the field? Yeah, there's, um, I mean, right now we're probably at Northwestern, we're probably involved in 20 different clinical trials for movement disorders, uh, uh, many of which are disease-modifying treatments. We're hoping will be disease-modifying treatments. Um, and so, I mean, we're really at a point where we're, um, uh, where we're all really hopeful that there's going to be something to actually slow down disease progression in degenerative diseases, whether it's Parkinson's or Alzheimer's or Huntington's. I mentioned I deal with Huntington's and um, we're dealing with trials of, of drugs that we're hoping will um, slow, will, will actually slow down this disease in, in all of our lifetimes. I mean, um, there's been some recent success. I know you're familiar with the success in spinal muscular atrophy. Mm-hmm. That technology is being applied to uh, Huntington's disease right now. And uh, we're all hopeful that the success of one disease using similar strategies is going to lead to success with some of these other really devastating conditions. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of hope, there's a lot of excitement, and there's a lot of trials happening right now. Yeah, that's fun. Fun times right now. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a movement disorder specialist? Yeah, I would. Yeah, it's, uh, it's still the most exciting to me. And I mean, I think most movement disorders neurologists, you know, if, if um, you have a video that you want to show a movement disorders neurologist, we all get excited. We're all on the edges of our seats. We, I think it's a field that you're always excited to see the next patient, the next video, um, because they're always, a little, every, everything's a little different and, um, and everything is uh, um, an opportunity to learn more. So it's really exciting, an exciting field. Any last words of wisdom for the pre-med or medical student, or maybe even resident listening to this who may be interested in movement disorder? Um, I mean, I would say the first step is uh, just following your passion for uh, what gets you excited. So try not to think at all about the the things you hear people. You know, a lot of people will talk about things like salary and lifestyle and other things. Um, but almost without almost any field in medicine, I think you can make it what you can make it what you want it to be. Find first what what excites you, and then worry about the the details of the specifics of the lifestyle and the salary. And, um, I think you'll be happier if you follow, if you follow your passion and your interest. Um, if you find yourself excited about neuroanatomy at all, um, I really think you should give neurology a chance. Um, it's, it's detective work, uh, at, at its best in medicine, but then within neurology, there's just so many different kinds of lifestyles and career paths. Um, as I mentioned, whether it's hands-on or whether it's clinic-based or whether it's uh, acute or chronic, there's so many different kinds of neurology tracks. Um, and then again, whether it's academic or private practice, whether you how much research versus clinical time you have, there's so much variability that that's something you figure out later. Um, but uh, I would say uh, just kind of follow that passion um, and uh, talk to as many people 
in the field that you might be interested in as possible. I think just hearing different inputs is useful because everybody will tell you something different. So getting a lot of input from, from people at different stages in their career is really important. Um, just having those discussions is really important. All right, there you have it again, Dr. Danny Bega, movement disorder specialist, someone who I've met before, so that was fun. And uh, the residency program director, neurology residency program director at Northwestern. I hope you got some good information out of this episode today about movement disorders, about residency, and much more. In the next couple of weeks, we'll have a couple psychiatrists talking about academic psychiatry and a, a big discussion in a few weeks about residency and the program director from a psychiatry standpoint of really what the program director is looking for in terms of applicants and what makes a successful applicant and what makes a successful resident and much more. So stay tuned. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.